Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Nine Years' War. This was uh, this was an absolutely defining moment in Irish history. It is the conflict that essentially ended Gaelic Ireland and saw uh, the island with an S fully succumb to English control. Now, Irish history is well; it is it's both very complicated and it's also very sad. Uh, as the island, again with an S, has faced invasion, it's faced oppression uh, for almost a thousand years. And even in recent decades, there have been, there's been social and, and, and cultural tension. There's been, there's been violence and, and, and terrorism. And, and it's very difficult to understand everything that's behind it all, all of the modern issues that plague Ireland. Uh, you know, you hear about Protestants and Catholics, you hear about Unionists and Republicans, you hear about the North and the South. Irish politics are as complex, they're, they're as complex now as they were back, you know, four or 500 years ago, the period we're going to talk about. But a lot of the issues that exist today can be traced back, at least in some part, to this period we're going to talk about, to the Nine Years' War, and more specifically, its result and its aftermath. In the 16th century, Ireland faced a renewed level of incursion, invasion and effective colonisation from their English neighbours. And of course, this wasn't new. England had been messing with Ireland for centuries, but in the late 16th century, it escalated to the point that the conflict between the Irish and the English became a full-blown war, the Nine Years' War. Now, initially in this war, Ireland had the upper hand. England was busy fighting Spain. The Irish had the home ground advantage. But as you might have guessed, it didn't end up going too well for the poor old Irish. And uh, and, and what we're going to talk about today, the, the Nine Years' War, it became one of the foundational aspects of the politics of Ireland, and particularly in the modern times, its political geography. And so before before we begin the this this history, before we begin talking about what happened 500 years ago, 400 years ago, let, let's talk about, I'll, I'll try to explain very quickly how the situation in Ireland uh, stands today. Now, Ireland is an island, that's I-S-L-A-N-D, um, as well as the name of a country. So there is a physical geographic landmass called Ireland, and there's also a country called Ireland. But the Republic of Ireland, the country, doesn't take up the whole landmass. The northeast corner of it is called Northern Ireland, and it's still part of the United Kingdom. It still has Queen Elizabeth as its monarch. It still uses British pounds. It is largely Protestant, and it makes up one of the four home nations of the United Kingdom, along with England, Scotland, and Wales. The Republic, however, which takes up the rest of the landmass of Ireland, is an, is an independent nation. It's part of the EU. It, it has a prime minister known as the Taoiseach as its leader. It uses the euro and is not connected to the United Kingdom in any other way than it shares a land border and a language and a very messy and, and tangled history. And the reason that this landmass, the reason that the island with an S is divided between Northern Ireland and the Republic is, <clears throat> very broadly speaking, because of the Nine Years' War and its aftermath. But this division, as you may very well know, it hasn't been a clean one. It hasn't been a harmonious one. And even today, it's the source of very serious political issues, both within and without Ireland itself, from sectarian violence in Belfast to the way that the land border between Ireland and the UK affected Brexit. 
And the the very uh, tumultuous and and mired history that Ireland and the Irish have uh, when it comes to their relationship with England, which went on to become Britain, which went on to become the UK today, uh, is one of the reasons that you should be very careful when talking about Ireland, particularly with someone who is Irish, and uh, do your very best to understand the distinctions between what it is to be Irish, what it is to be Northern Irish, what it is to be British, what it is to be English, because these are all very different things. And, you know, some people from certain parts of the world tend to just say England when they mean anyone from the British Isles, which could be Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish, or just someone from the Republic of Ireland who, politically speaking, is almost completely disconnected from the United Kingdom. In a modern sense, there is no special link between these two other than the fact they share a land border and this very complicated history that we're going to try to unpick a little bit here. I want to thank Colm Duffy for sending in this topic as a suggestion for the podcast. It's not the silliest or the funniest topic, but, you know, hopefully people will learn a thing or two about a country that has, in my view, suffered horrific and largely overlooked oppression for, for centuries. People have a very bad habit of laughing off the suffering of the Irish, whether they're, whether it's their oppression at the hands of the English and the British, uh, or the famine that killed and displaced millions uh, in the 19th century, or just by generally making light of Irish people and Irish culture with, you know, drinking and buffoonery and whatever else. The Irish have done it very tough for almost a thousand years. They're, they're so poorly perceived and marginalised even by modern historians that, that much of the reading that I did about this topic referred to them as rebels when fighting the Nine Years' War, when they were fighting off an invading neighbour. Imagine that. They were labelled rebels as they fought to maintain their historically established independence against an invading army. Anyway, this episode is more, you know, probably going to be a little more sober than most, I suppose. Apologies for that. But as it deals with the end of a nation and much of its culture, and in that people are all too ready to accept because, hey, you know, it's the Irish, uh, it was, I guess it was never going to be a barrel of laughs. Um, and one final thing before we begin, I have done my research as best as I can, and uh, I, I do at least hope that, you know, I've done my due diligence on the stuff that I'm going to say here and, and, and hopefully I'll be able to stand behind it. But certainly I want to say that I am not an expert in Irish politics. I'm not an expert in Irish history. This is a general overview. I am I have probably got things wrong and I apologize in advance, particularly to anyone from Ireland who is listening to this and might take exception to some of the things that I say. Irish history is, as I said, very complicated, very tragic and is filled with uh, differing and often diametrically opposed perspectives that are very, very difficult to unpick and, uh, and I guess, reconcile with each other. So I've done my best. Um, and, and again, I apologize in advance if anything that I'm saying is, uh, is out of line. But look, here we go. Let's get underway. Let's learn a thing or two about the Nine Years' War, the conflict that brought Gaelic Ireland to an end and establish the political realities of the modern island of Ireland. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to... Um, Actually, yeah, bloody hell, where do we start with this one? We've we've kind of already talked about the fact that, you know, much of much of the incomprehensibility of, of Irish politics, the how confusing and complex it is, is because of its relationship with in with it with the English and, and, and then later the British. But we can we can actually go back uh even further than that. We can go uh, back to the time before the Norman invasion of Ireland in the twelfth century and talk about the fact that even the Vikings got involved in invading Ireland. Uh, or we could go back even further and talk about the the existence of Gaelic Ireland. Gaelic Ireland, as it was known, was when the landmass of Ireland, the, the entire island with an S, 
was ruled completely by various chiefs and kings and other leaders, and occasionally, when they could all come together and agree on it, a high king of Ireland as well. So this is this is uh, you know in in late antiquity, in the early uh, in, in the early Middle Ages, Gaelic Ireland had a clan-based society, didn't really use money, uh, was pagan to begin with, although Christianity took hold throughout the first millennia. But then as we arrive in the ninth century, so too arrived the Vikings. Sure enough, Viking culture influenced Gaelic culture in, in the areas that the Vikings invaded, settled down and, uh, and established themselves. So already, you know, Ireland, like many other places in the time, including, you know, other parts of the British Isles, was being invaded by uh by, by the Vikings being subject to foreign culture coming in and influencing it very strongly. But then in the late 12th century, you know, uh, in the time after the Norman conquest of England, the Anglo-Normans began to invade Ireland as well. And they did so reasonably successfully. They brought a significant part of the island under Norman control, although Gaelic Ireland still continued outside of these areas for the further west you went. But the areas that were under the control of the Anglo-Normans, or just later on the English as, as they became, uh, they began to shrink as the Irish fought and regained control of a fair whack of territory, pushing the English back basically to the Pale, the area roughly around Dublin. And from the, the mid-14th century onwards, most of the island of Ireland was under Gaelic control. Again, chiefs and lords and whoever else, despite the English claiming dominion over it in practical terms, in, you know, in actual the, the, the actual reality of the situation is that Gaelic Ireland was largely speaking an autonomous and, and, and uh, politically independent uh, area. However, as we approach the beginning of our story about the Nine Years' War, uh, that is changing in a big way, thanks to none other than Henry VIII. Now, Henry VIII, he decided that it wasn't enough for him to claim dominion over Ireland. He wanted to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. What good was it to claim dominion over Ireland if the you know if this landmass was still effectively being ruled by all these independent chieftains who didn't actually answer to him? No. He wanted actual factual dominion and so in 1529 the Tudor conquest of Ireland began. Now, Henry VIII's conquest attempts, uh, they, they didn't really go that smoothly. There was resistance, there were rebellions, uh, although some Irish lords decided to give in and accept English dominion rather than fight because they probably realised that in many cases, you know, discretion was the better part of valour and maybe the English would just kind of leave them alone if they paid lip service to the crown. But Henry effectively attempted to centralise the governance of the island and bring the Irish upper class, whether they were lords aligned to the English or those hostile to it, under his control. And as I say, it wasn't a smooth conquest, with resistance from the areas that were well and truly independent and rebellion from within areas controlled by the English. Henry's, uh, Henry's conquest, the Tudor conquest, it, it, it wasn't as smooth as he would have liked it. But the conquest had a different element to it as well, because obviously when we think about conquest, we think about military conquest, but the Tudor conquest involved many, many other very important non-military aspects as well. The English under Henry and then later under his successors, they sought to undermine and erode Irish culture, Irish language, their customs and traditions, their law, and ultimately with the Reformation, with the rise of Protestantism in England, with, with Anglicanism, they sought to erode Irish religion too, because 
much of Ireland was was Catholic. Throughout the 16th century, the English slowly but uh, but surely encroached on Ireland politically, militarily, culturally. Even after Henry VIII's death, many Irish lords fought the English, of course, resisting this conquest as best they could. And, you know, as I say, rebellions amongst those who were brought under English rule were reasonably common as well. There were raids against English-held territories. These were very common. Uh, Resistance was widespread, but it wasn't as effective as it could have been. Some of the Irish lords made conquest all the easier for the English as they pushed further westward, let me tell you, because they got stuck fighting amongst themselves instead of uniting against their common enemy of these, you know, the invading English here. It was a messy and it was a very violent time in Ireland, and unfortunately Irish history has all too often been both messy and violent since then. Anyway, under Henry's successors, the Queens Mary I and Elizabeth I, this conquest of Ireland continued. Mary established martial governments where the military rulers were able to execute people without trial, and you won't be surprised, you won't be surprised to learn that this went over like a fart in an elevator, rather than you know pacify the Irish. It actually did the opposite. It galvanised uh, the support for resistance and, and increased the fervour of those who were fighting off the English. And after seeing this from the 1550s onwards, a different tack was taken by the English. The English essentially tried to start colonising Ireland. Now, it's very odd to think of it in this way because, you know, at first blush, England sending settlers to Ireland doesn't really feel like what we consider colonisation to be, but it was. England sent settlers not only to generate wealth for England, but also to spread their own culture, their own language and their own laws throughout a foreign land without much thought for those who already lived there. That is the definition of colonisation. It's what happened in the Americas. It's what happened throughout Asia and the Pacific. And while Ireland wasn't quite as far away, it also happened there as well. These colonies, or these plantations as they became known, they were for all intents and purposes English colonies within Ireland. The English sent settlers over to Ireland to set up shop there and attempt to spread English language and English culture, establish a section of the population there who were loyal to the English crown. And while the first ones under Mary weren't very successful, this colonisation process would go on to be very important in Irish history, as we'll get to eventually. Now, Things escalated further in 1570. Elizabeth I had taken the throne by now, and she was declared a heretic by the Pope. And uh, as most of Ireland was still Catholic, this energised Irish resistance to the English even further, as the conflict began to include a very strong religious element that had been lacking under the Queenship of Mary, who of course was a Catholic. The division between Protestant and Catholic Ireland is something that still exists today. This religious element, it's not gone anywhere. Much of the tension and conflict within modern Ireland comes down to a Protestant versus Catholic division, monarchical Protestants against Republican Catholics in very broad terms. But back in the late 16th century, Elizabeth, right, hastened to strengthen her control over Ireland as this conflict was now well and truly a religious one. And this escalation led directly to the Nine Years' War beginning in 1593. And as we start talking about the Nine Years' War, we have to meet a fellow who is more or less the main character of this whole conflict, a bloke by the name of Hugh O'Neill. Hugh O'Neill was an Irish lord. He was the Earl of Tyrone. He lived up in the north of Ireland in a province known as Ulster. And before this war, his allegiance was, um, how shall we put this? It was conveniently fluid. When it suited him, he would give every appearance of submitting to the English, but then at other points he would stand in their way, resist them and their efforts to colonise and overtake Ireland. 
But overall, he was seen by the English as one of the Irish lords who was more or less loyal to Elizabeth. But that wasn't to last. Hugh O'Neill was very, very wealthy, and he had a very large military as well, thanks to the fact that he you know, used conscription to force many young men under his rule to join his armies. And he also consolidated his power further by not making the mistakes of many other Irish lords and allying himself with a former rival of his, another Irish lord whose name was Hugh Rowe O'Donnell. Now, traditionally, the O'Neills and the O'Donnells, they didn't get on, but O'Neill allied himself to O'Donnell through marriage and and many other Irish lords beside. He made, he made a, a, a fair few cunning political alliances here to begin to more vigorously resist the English. So despite initially more or less being, well, loyal might be a bit of a stretch, but at least largely accepting of the English and their role in Ireland, O'Neill began to show his true colours. His physical position was well suited to resist the English as well. He was located, as I say, up in Ulster in the north of Ireland, uh, which is filled with mountains, marshlands, forests, makes it uh, very difficult for troops to invade this area. And in 1593, the war began properly when O'Donnell began to stage more ambitious uh, raids and attacks on the English in Ireland. But to begin with, O'Neill, he seemed pretty chill about it. He seemed to be on the side of the English in responding to these raids, despite the fact that he was was allied with O'Donnell. But Queen Elizabeth, she wasn't having it. She was cunning and she was politically savvy and she smelt a rat. She knew that the ambitious O'Neill was plotting something. She knew about the alliance through marriage. She knew that there was more to it than it seemed. And she suspected that O'Neill was playing silly buggers, hoping for an official English appointment to a higher position of power, you know, a governorship of some kind, something like that. Uh, And in such a position, rather than see to the needs of the English and carry out the orders of Her Majesty... He would then combine his newfound power and resources with his existing, uh, existing wealth and military might and his alliances and usurp the power that England had over Ireland. Now, Elizabeth, as a result of this, she didn't fall for it. She didn't grant O'Neill the power to govern any part of Ireland on her behalf. But she was kind of damned if she didn't, damned if she didn't, because once O'Neill realised that his attempts to betray the English from within were doomed, he instead just joined O'Donnell properly in open rebellion. And I'll tell you this. The Irish did pretty bloody well in driving back the English, particularly after O'Neill finally joined the war in 1595. They pushed the English back to their isolated garrisons and fortifications, and there were popular uprisings throughout the entire island. The English plantation colonies were undone. By the time we get to 1599, you know, after this war's been, uh, been fought for quite a number of years, Things are looking very good for the Irish. They haven't managed to boot the English out completely, but as I say, they have reduced their holdings to the areas around fortified military towns or other garrisons that have been put there. And broadly speaking, the Irish have done very well. And O'Neill and O'Donnell, they're hailed as heroes. They wanted to make the most of their hard-fought victories. They wanted to press the advantage while they had the English on the back foot. And so they tried to consolidate their position in two different ways. They knew the English were in a position of weakness. The English are still fighting the Spanish. The Anglo-Spanish War has been going on for years. And uh, this involved battles like the uh, uh, like the Spanish Armada, of course, episode 35, get across it. And uh, O'Neill and O'Donnell, they want to strike while the iron's hot and try to gain some kind of uh, concession from Elizabeth while she's busy fighting the Spanish and, and, and has you know, her resources, resources tied up like this. So they draft a peace agreement. They send it off to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, They've just 
beat off the 17,000 men that she'd sent in 1599. They are riding high on victory. And so initially, a truce is agreed upon with the Irish in a very advantageous position, while Elizabeth considered this, uh, this peace agreement and decided what to do. O'Neill and O'Donnell, their, 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 their terms for the peace agreement were actually they actually weren't that demanding, to be honest. They wanted the lands that the English had taken returned to the Irish. They wanted a self-governing island with religious protections for Catholics. But they didn't actually demand complete and full independence. They were, they were more or less happy to accept English dominion in name if they could go back to just being left alone and enjoy you know, their, their lives as they'd had it before this, uh, this, this Tudor invasion of, of Ireland had happened. They also, however, pursued another line to consolidate their position. And uh, this line was uh, a fair bit less diplomatic than the one that they took with Queen Elizabeth and you know, the, seeking this peace treaty with her because they approached her mortal enemy, King Philip II of Spain. Now, a couple of years previously, in 1595, they'd actually written to King Philip of Spain offering to vassalise themselves to the Spanish Empire in exchange for his help fighting the English. Now, you might look at this and go, what the hell? They're fighting for, the, you know, they're fighting for a, a, an effectively independent island, even if it's not a technically independent island. They're fighting for a, you know, an island that is independent in practice, even if it's not independent on paper. So why would they approach then a different monarch and offer to vassalise themselves there? Well, don't forget... The conflict between the English and the Irish at this point now is definitely well and truly a religious one. And the Catholic Spaniards are already fighting the Protestant English in the Anglo-Spanish War. So, failing this peace agreement, the Irish saw Spain as a way to find, you know, a bigger bully on the playground that could protect them from the English and preserve their Catholic way of life. Now, nothing came of the original attempt in 1595. There were envoys sent and a couple of conversations were had, but Spain really didn't interfere too much in Ireland. But now, of course, with the Irish having put themselves in a very good position with the Nine Years' War going their way, Spain is now much more interested. They've got a new king, King Philip III, and he begins to eye off Ireland as a potential staging ground for for the Spanish campaign against the English. Now, his predecessor, Philip II, the one who the, the Irish had approached beforehand, they, he had supported the Irish with supplies and other materials, but King Philip III, he would prove ready to provide a fair bit more. And when the peace agreement came to nothing, when the English rejected it and instead began to gather their forces and attempt once again to fight the, fight the Irish and, 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 and capture the island, the Spanish this time did decide that they wanted to get stuck in and fight the English alongside the Irish. And as I say, with good bloody reason, the Anglo-Spanish War, it's still going on. It has been going on for over 15 years. And the Spanish see Ireland as the first, as, as the perfect place now to stage further attacks on England. And so they want to shore up its defences. They want to help the Irish reclaim the, uh, the island here. And, uh, you know, with them on good terms with Spain, Spain could then use Ireland as a, as a place to launch attacks on the English. So the Spanish and the Irish, ready and willing allies. And Philip III makes ready a huge contingent of Spanish soldiers, 6,000 men in all. He loads them all up into ships and he sends them off to Ireland. But here's where the problems begin. Because only around 4,000 of the 6,000 men that the Spanish sent actually arrive in Ireland. There was stormy weather, there was bad weather that split up the Spanish fleet en route. 
and about 2,000 of the soldiers are forced to return to Spain. And those 2,000 soldiers, as luck would have it, happen not only to be the hardened and experienced veterans, but also happen to have most of the gunpowder with them. So a significantly weaker force than was sent out arrived in Ireland. They arrived in Kinsale, which is a town to the south of Ireland, just near Cork, and fortified their positions against the nearby English garrisons. But further problems. It only got worse from there. I don't know how much you know about Irish geography, but the Spanish arrived in the south, in Cork, and the bulk of the Irish uh, resistance is based in northern Ulster. Now, Ireland isn't very big, but it is difficult to find two places that, in Ireland that are further away from one another than Ulster and Cork. So, yes, the Spanish have arrived, but in reduced numbers and a long way from their Irish allies who are all up north under O'Neill in Ulster. So not bloody ideal start here. Not a bloody ideal start by any means. And at the same time, once again, uh, the Elizabeth, she is ready for a scrap. When she heard that the, uh, the Spanish had landed, she rushes to ready her forces in England and she sends them off to fight now that she recognises that her, her enemies, the Spanish, are getting involved in Ireland. In October 1601, the English forces, supported by some Irish lords who had also thrown in with, with Elizabeth, they landed at Kinsale and they besieged it with as many as 12,000 troops. And on top of this, an English fleet blockaded the harbour of Kinsale, cutting the Spanish off by sea as well. So it wasn't a good situation for the Spaniards. They were hugely outnumbered. They were cut off from their, their allies in the north. They were encircled effectively by the English. The English put, took up positions on the hills around Kinsale. They bombarded the Spanish with artillery fire. So things looking very, very bad for the Spaniards. Up north, however, their allies, O'Neill and O'Donnell, they hear what's going on down in Kinsale and they have no idea what to do. Very tricky position for them as well. They're a long way away from their Spanish allies. They're not in a good position to help them at all. But they both realise that if the Spanish are defeated in Kinsale, then it might be, you know, it's probably going to be very unlikely for, you know, old mate Philip III to send over more troops if his first round gets defeated like this. So they want to go and aid the Spaniards who are down in Kinsale. But it's not as simple as that. Winter's not too far away. A march across the length of Ireland would be, would be dangerous for, for more reasons than just the weather. There were still areas of Ireland that were under English control that, that they'd have to cross. And on top of that, even if they mustered the biggest force that they possibly could and combine it with the Spaniards down in, in Kinsale, they'd still be outnumbered by the English. But most risky of all is that they would be leaving Ulster the heartland of those resisting English invasion, they'd be leaving it vulnerable to attack by marching south with so many troops. The Irish had very successfully fought the Nine Years' War on their own terms up until now, using guerrilla tactics, ambushes and raids, making use of their knowledge of local terrain, all that sort of thing. They had the home ground advantage. But now, with the Siege of Kinsale underway, here is the potential for a pitched battle with a larger army after a long march through the winter supported by allies that are currently suffering a siege. It was not a hugely welcome prospect, let me tell you. And as a result, O'Neill and O'Donnell, they hesitated. They were indecisive. They didn't know what to do. And it was perhaps too late when they finally decided it was all or nothing and they had to march south 
to meet their Spanish allies and try to resist the English as they besiege Kinsale. They set off in December, a wintertime march across Ireland to help the Spanish down south. Now, fortunately for the Irish armies, the march actually had a fair bit of upside. As they marched south, they cut many English lines of supply that were keeping the massive army at Kinsale fed. O'Neill ordered his army to, to ravage and burn the lands of, of other Irish lords who had fallen in with the English, so to weaken the English position in Ireland. And this meant that the English forces in Kinsale, they were winnowed down by a lack of supplies, and as a result, hunger and, and disease and illness set in as well. The marching troops uh, from Ulster, they arrived in Kinsale safely. And some Spanish reinforcements also arrived to support the existing Spanish and Irish armies there. However, even with these reinforcements, even with the, uh, the Irish army marching across the length of the entire country, they were still outnumbered by this massive English army that, that Elizabeth had put together. But ultimately, of course, with these armies assembled down in the south, down in Kinsale, it resulted, as you've guessed, in a battle. On the 3rd of January, 1602, the Battle of Kinsale finally took place. The Irish and Spanish forces numbered just shy of 10,000 men. And while the English forces had been devastated by hunger and disease, there were still around 12,000 men who were ready to fight. And unfortunately for the Irish and the Spanish, almost 1,000 of that 12,000 were highly trained elite English cavalry. The Irish and the Spanish, they drew up into formation to fight the English and they attempted to use the marshy terrain to undermine the effectiveness of the English cavalry and, and undercut their mobility, but it wasn't enough. The Irish army wasn't made up of professional soldiers. A huge proportion of the Irish army were conscripts. They were just regular blokes that O'Neill had brought, to the, brought, to the, you know, brought along to fight the English with him. And while the Spanish soldiers were, were better trained and better equipped than their Irish allies, the English army was more experienced heavily drilled, and ultimately much more powerful than their enemies. The English cavalry broke the ranks of the Irish and Spanish armies who were unable to leverage the terrain to their advantage, and the poorly trained Irish foot soldiers were unable to hold their own in the face of the English cavalry. The Irish routed soon after the English attacked, and while the Spanish held, and, to their credit, defended their fleeing Irish allies, the Battle of Kinsale was ultimately a very one-sided affair. The English victory at the Battle of Kinsale is a remarkably significant event in Irish history because it effectively marks the end of Gaelic Ireland. And its aftermath goes a long way in explaining why things in Ireland developed as they did to this very day. The survivors of the routed Irish forces, they scattered, they fled. Some returned to Ulster. O'Neill and O'Donnell both returned north to renew their resistance. But unfortunately, there was very little hope for them now. Meanwhile, down in Kinsale, the victorious English army completely encircled the embattled uh, Spaniards, who surrendered. They gave the town over to the English. They were allowed by the English to board their ships and leave Ireland and return to Spain. But that was the end of them. O'Donnell also fled the country. He travelled to Spain, where he died not long after all this took place in 1602. But O'Neill remained behind. He wasn't able to drum up support for his campaign against the English after this defeat at Kinsale. However, his uh, his heir is this this mighty conqueror, this, this hero in resisting England had been shattered. And slowly but surely in the coming years, the English wore away at the Irish and reconquered much of Ireland. And ultimately, despite all of those natural defences that I, men I mentioned Ulster had, despite the mountains and the bogs and everything else, the English arrived in Ulster, 
where O'Neill, who had never managed to rally or regain the, the level of military might that he had before the Battle of Kinsale, was forced to surrender in March 1603, shortly after the death of Queen Elizabeth. As a result, he surrendered not to Elizabeth, but instead to the new king, James VI and I, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was king of both Scotland and England. And luckily for O'Neill, James was in a mind to be rather forgiving of the Irish lords who had resisted him, and he was pardoned after having a bunch of land confiscated. However, he didn't remain in Ireland for very much longer, particularly after the gunpowder plot that involved Catholics attempting to blow up the Houses of Parliament in London. After that, it became very, very, very difficult to be a Catholic noble whose loyalty was divided between King James and the Pope. And because of this, many Irish lords who were fearful of retribution as Catholics in the wake of the gunpowder plot, they fled Ireland altogether. O'Neill and many other prominent Irish lords, they left Ireland for good. They sailed to Spain and then travelled through the European continent, condemned to exile. And this was known, it became known to history, as the Flight of the Earls. And if the Battle of Kinsale didn't represent the end of Gaelic Ireland, the Flight of the Earls certainly did. O'Neill was determined to find support from Catholic leaders on the continent for a reinvasion of his homeland. One of the reasons that he left was to try to drum up Catholic support to, to resist again the Protestant, Protestant English as they took over Ireland. But this support was never forthcoming. He sought for a sympathetic Catholic king who would help him reclaim Ireland in the name of their shared faith, taking the fight to the Protestant King James VI and I, reconquering his homeland, but it never happened. The Anglo-Spanish War ended in 1604. King Philip III wasn't interested in reigniting the conflict for the sake of the Irish. And despite travelling through France, the Holy Roman Empire, and even to Rome itself, O'Neill never found any support for his cause. And he died in 1616 in Rome, never returning to Ireland after his flight in 1607. But back in Ireland after the flight of the Earls, what was done with all the land that O'Neill and the other exiled lords had left behind? What was done with the land that King James had confiscated from O'Neill and other Catholic lords or the people who had resisted him during the Nine Years' War? Well, have a look at a map of Ireland these days, and you'll notice that the, the northeastern part is the part known as Northern Ireland. It's not part of the Republic. It remains part of the United Kingdom as one of the four home nations alongside England, Scotland, and Wales. And while the entire island was under British control until the early 20th century, as Ireland fought to establish itself as an independent nation, part of Ireland remained behind and chose to instead stay part of the UK. This division has been the basis of long-standing and bitter conflict that even today hasn't really been properly resolved. There are still cultural, religious and nationalistic tensions on the island of Ireland between Protestants and Catholics, between Union, Unionists and Republicans, between those in the North and those in the South. And why is that? Especially when you consider that Ulster, the North was the focal point of those resisting the English conquest of Ireland back during the Nine Years' War. How is it that this former heartland of the resistance is the part that today has remained within the United Kingdom? Well, it comes back to what was done with the land that was confiscated and seized from these Irish lords like O'Neill, the ringmasters of the resistance, both before and after the flight of the earls. Remember earlier on in this episode, I talked about the colonies, the plantations that the English, English established under Queen Mary in the 1550s? Well, King James did exactly the same thing. 
He sent settlers from the Scottish lowlands and, the, and from northern England to Ulster, to Northern Ireland, who established themselves there and spread Protestantism, along with English culture, English language, and English law, as well as loyalty to the English crown. Irish and Gaelic culture was steadily eroded throughout all of Ireland as the English, quote-unquote, civilised their Irish neighbours. And as England and Scotland and Wales came together to form first Great Britain, then ultimately the United Kingdom, Ireland was brought along with them. But nowhere was this cultural erosion more pronounced than in the North, the former heartland of the resistance where Gaelic culture was now being swiftly overwritten by the colonists who were brought in by King James. Ulster went from being the province most strident in its resistance to the English, to the area that the British ended up keeping when the rest of the island established itself as a republic, all because of the Nine Years' War, the defeat at Kinsale, the flight of the earls, and the colonists that were sent over to establish the plantation of Ulster. And the descendants of these colonists still live in Northern Ireland today. They've had their religion and their culture and their loyalty to the British crown passed down generation to generation for the last four centuries. And they were joined, of course, over the years by more and more people from Britain moving to and settling in Ulster, meaning that by the time we get to the 1921 partition of Ireland, we see Northern Ireland become separate from what would go on to become today's Republic of Ireland in the South. And this historical division is one of the main causes behind the tensions that exist on the island of Ireland even today, and the reason that issues like Brexit, a hard Irish border, the Good Friday Agreement, and so many other modern 21st century British and Irish affairs are so complicated and difficult to navigate. I don't pretend to be an expert and I don't pretend to fully understand all the hugely complex historical issues that dominate the Irish people on both sides of the border, but it's clear to see that the Nine Years' War and the consequent plantation of Ulster were watershed moments in Irish history. Gaelic Ireland ended with the Nine Years' War, and the plantation of Ulster is what brought about the modern political and social realities of the island of Ireland. The Nine Years' War marked the end of an era in Irish history. So the next time you hear about the strife between Westminster and Dublin over the Good Friday Agreement, or how the UK is arguing with the EU about custom zones across the Irish Sea, or if you ever wish to untangle the sectarian violence that has plagued Ireland for so long, or just understand any of the gags in Derry Girls about Protestants and Catholics, well, it all comes back to the Nine Years' War and the Battle of Kinsale. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Nine Years' War and how it brought about the end of Gaelic Ireland. And, you know, look, I acknowledge that this saw, this was a, 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 an episode that struck a more serious tone, but hopefully hopefully you took something from it. Hopefully you learned something. I mean, Irish history, is it, it's tragic and it is complicated, but it is absolutely fascinating. And I learned a lot by by reading and researching this topic. So hopefully you learned something by uh, by listening to this episode as well. And I want to thank once again alert listener Colm Duffy for sending this uh, topic in because it really was it, it, it was fascinating to learn so much about this uh, you know this part of history that is that is so often and so readily overlooked. Anyway, 
all the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way here halfhousehistory.net if you want to follow in the exalted footsteps of people like colin duffy head there and use the contact form to send in a topic suggestion you can also find links to old episodes but the best way to subscribe to the show is of course at anchor.fm anchor.fm slash history. that's where the uh that's that's where the episodes get uh, beamed to your your podcast device of choice whether it's spotify or itunes you can uh, you can subscribe through anchor and of course if you want to support the show financially the best way to do that is on patreon patreon.com slash half history a big thank you to all the people supporting me on patreon uh appreciate it immensely so cheers very much for that but if you want to give me money and actually receive something material in exchange head to the merch store if you head to halfhousehistory.net and follow the link to uh the the merch page there you'll be able to buy all sorts of stuff mugs t-shirts pillows for some reason laptop cases all sorts of nonsense there if you want some of that uh go and get across it also still accepting suggestions for merch ideas if you've got a piece of merch from half a history you'd like to see made let me know what it is and i'll see if i can sort it out for you but that's the end of another episode thanks for being with me i'll see you back here next week for more half a history until then leaving you with a question posed on reddit to do with ireland this one comes to us from reddit a terrible palsy who asks why is the shamrock the national symbol of ireland couldn't they find any genuine rocks?